Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ruth Wisher. I'd like to welcome you to the Magic Kingdom that is Charlotte Square Gardens in August, and where this morning we have our very own Weaver of Spells. For those who believe that poetry is the key to best comprehending the human condition, our guest this morning surely embodies and enhances that conviction. Poet and linguist, scholar and teacher, and Nobel laureate. Once in an Oxford lecture, he described the late Hugh McDermott as a torchlight procession of one. Perhaps I think he was looking in the mirror at the time. Ladies and gentlemen, Seamus Heaney. Thank you very much, Ruth. Um, no, waste no time. Get, get on with it. This book is called uh, District and Circle. So I'm going to read a uh, few poems from it. Uh, it could have been called uh, Braird. I was talking last night, and I called the talk Braird and Breed. And Braird means uh, the green, first green shoots of corn or shoots of leaves. And it was part of the Scots element in the speech I grew up with. But uh, I thought it would be a fancy and beautiful title, but it would be a bit puzzling to various people, so I thought, leave that. Uh, th the other title I thought of for this book was... Uh, Planting the alder. We have an alder tree, a planter of alders in my life, and uh, I thought that's a rather beautiful, and then I thought it was too beautiful. Uh, <laughs> and then Paul Muldoon, I, I thought to myself, I might call it just alder. And Muldoon said to me, Oh, yes, he said, I can see the reviews, the alder statesman. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Alderman Heaney. Uh, then I had this mighty notion because of something that happened, I'll, I'll probably read it later on, of calling it Midnight Anvil. Uh, so beautiful associations in my own head with uh, a forge that was close, about a mile away from where I grew up. You hear the music of the forge, uh, of the, you know, the anvil, uh, during the day. And uh, there's all kinds of bell associations with, I mean, there are blacksmiths in medieval poetry called the water burners going huff puff beautiful poem in Irish by Owen Rowe Sulawine asking asking a, a blacksmith to make him the perfect spade uh, there's and then off 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 the uh, anvil track there's the bells in George Herbert's poem uh, prayer he says prayers like church bells beyond the stars heard so I didn't call it any of those things <laughs> but I'll, I'll read the first poem chronologically speaking that was written. It was written just after um, September 11, 2001. I had, it's a translation of a, a poem by uh, Horace, and I had talked about it to a, a group of students in Harvard the previous year, uh, in 2000. It's about Horace being shaken to the very core because he hears thunder unexpectedly. It's Odes, book one, number 34, if you want to look it up. Um, uh, and uh, the earth shakes he is shaken there is no hiding place and uh, the actual Latin terms of, of the poem he talks about the summa the highest things being uh, the, the God Deus imo valet the God certainly has power he can change the highest things he can, he can promote promens he says the uh, ignota bring forward causes not known so when the, uh, the 
towers were uh, attacked, uh, that sense of the atrocious, unexpected change in the world uh, was there, and also the sense of certain retaliation, which added to the dread. So this poem was, it seemed to me, adequate to it, insofar as poetry can be. Uh, so I call it Anything Can Happen, and it's... Um, I added a stanza of my own, I'm afraid. Guess which. <laughs> Anything can happen. Anything can happen. You know how Jupiter will mostly wait for clouds to gather ahead before he hurls the lightning. Well, just now, he galloped his thunder cart and his horses across a clear blue sky. It shook the earth and the clogged under earth the river sticks, the winding streams, the Atlantic shore itself. Anything can happen. The tallest towers be overturned, those in high places daunted, those overlooked regarded. Stropped beak fortune swoops, making the air gasp, tearing the crest off one, setting it down bleeding on the next. Ground gives, the heavens wait, lifts up off Atlas like a kettle lid. Capstones shift, nothing resettles right. Telluric ash and fire spores boil away. After that came Afghanistan and there were these um, television shots of um, these decent opium farmers standing in their turbans watching the watching the uh, armoured cars and the tanks and the Americans going past. It brought me back to 1944 in County Derry when the American troops were there. We didn't know really why they were there, nor did they. Uh, they were getting ready for D-Day. We didn't know what was ahead. Young fellows running around with rifles through the roads of Anahorish and Balachi and so on. Uh, but destined for danger. So this is a kind of an oblique, uh, an oblique poem about our age of anxiety in uh, the early 21st century. Anna Horace, 1944. It's in inverted commas. My neighbours are speaking, watching. They were pig farmers. We were killing pigs when the Americans arrived. A Tuesday morning, sunlight and gutter blood outside the slaughterhouse. From the main road, they would have heard the squealing, then heard it stop, and had a view of us in our gloves and aprons coming down the hill. Two lines of them, guns on their shoulders, marching, armoured cars and tanks and open jeeps, sunburnt hands and arms, unknown, unnamed, hosting for Normandy. Not that we knew then where they were headed, standing there like youngsters as they tossed us gum and tubes of coloured sweets. This is a translation of a poem by Rilke. Uh, it's about trauma, really, and about a kind of trauma that suffered uh, universally now, even Belfast it was. The shock of something that was there blown up and gone away overnight and it has been seen on a grand scale recently, as we know, in the 
Lebanese border, but everywhere in the world. And um, this is called After the Fire. It's, it's, a, it's a tight focus on a, on a young fellow coming, a son of a, a, a family who have, the house has been burnt the night before. And there's that slightly traumatized, agog quality to the boy's perception. I thought it was a poem for our moment also in a different way. Rilke, After the Fire. Early autumn morning hesitated, shying at newness, an emptiness behind scorched linden trees, still crowding in around the moorland house, now just one more wallstead, where youngsters gathered up from God knows where, hunted and yelled and ran wild in a pack, yet all of them fell silent when he appeared, the son of the place, and with a long forked stick dragged an out-of-shape old can or kettle from under hot, half-burnt-away house beams. And then, like one with a doubtful tale to tell, turned to the others present, at great pains to make them realize what had stood so. For now that it was gone, it all seemed far stranger, more fantastical than Pharaoh. And he was changed, a foreigner, among them. District and Circle, five sonnets. I wrote two of them in May, the first one and the last one of these five, in May last year. <clears throat> and uh, I called them District and Circle because I thought, going back to titles, well, that'll be a surprise from Haney, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and at the same time, I have my own district, I think, and at this stage, I'm circling it and returning to it and so on. <clears throat> but the, the, the poem began without any intent other than coming to, to address a nicely complicated private experience, which is common, I think. You're going down into the underground, the tube trains, and you hear the music before you see him, and you come down and halfway down in one of the landings of the stairs there's usually a lad with a tin whistle or a fiddle and he's usually an Irish fellow and maybe he even half recognises me and uh, yeah. and you think mm, what do we do here I mean obviously he wants money but I don't think of myself as a mean person but quite often I think there's something demeaning about throwing down the money really what we want here is the recognition of artist to artist uh, and uh, quite often Straight, look him straight in the eye instead of avoiding his eye and maybe raise the thumb or have some form of and occasionally I drop the money and occasionally I don't there's always a little question anyway that's how it started and then then deeper down in and once deeper down of course you realise after I'd written the first sonnet I didn't begin thinking of the underground, the sticks, the care on all that classical stuff but the minute you're done and the coins have entered, you remember it. So there, these were two underground jobs. Then July and the explosions and the desecrations there. So I thought these, if I go on with this, the thing will be under great scrutiny. So I added in three more sonnets. Basically, nothing, just to make the journey more specific. And that uh, Rilke poem ends that he says, a for he's like a foreigner among them. I think when you enter the underground, there is that uh, slight glazed pain of distance between everybody. There is, there is a kind of 
borne away, transported quality to it. So district and circle. Strange enough stuff, but it'll be over in five minutes. For <laughs> Tunes from a tin whistle underground up a corridor I'd be walking down to where I knew I was always going to find my watcher on the tiles, capped by his side, his fingers perked, his two eyes eyeing me in an unaccusing look I'd not avoid, or not just yet, since both were out to sea for ourselves. As the music larked and capered, I'd trigger and untrigger a hot coin held at the ready, but now my gaze was lowered, for was our traffic not in recognition? Accorded passage, I would repocket and nod, and he, still eyeing me, would also nod. Posted, eyes front, along the dreamy ramparts of escalators ascending and descending to a monotonous slight rocking in the works, we were moved along, upstanding. Elsewhere, underneath, an engine powered, rumbled, quickened, evened, quieted. The white tiles gleamed. In passages that flowed with draughts from cooler tunnels, I missed the light of all overing, long since mysterious day. Parks at lunchtime, where the sunners lay on body-heated mown grass, regardless. A resurrection scene, minutes before the resurrection. Habitues of their garden of delights, of staggered summer. Another level down, the platform thronged. I re-entered the safety of numbers. A crowd half straggle raveled and half strung like a human chain. The pushy newcomers jostling or purling underneath the vault on their marks to be first through the doors, street loud, then succumbing to herd quiet. Had I betrayed or not myself or him? Always new to me, always familiar, this unrepentant, now repentant turn as I stood waiting, glad of a first tremor, then caught up in the now or never whelm of one and all the full length of the train. Stepping onto it, across the gap, onto the carriage metal, I reached to grab the stubby black roof wart and take my stand from planted ball of heel to heel of hand as sweet traction and heavy downslump stayed me. I was on my way, well-girded, yet on edge, spot-rooted, buoyed, aloof, listening to the dwindling noises off, my back to the unclosed door, the platform empty, and wished it could have lasted, that long between-times pause before the budge and glaze over, when any forwardness was unwelcome, and bodies readjusted, blindsided to themselves and other bodies. So, deeper into it, crowd-swept, strap-hanging, my lofted arm a swivel like a flail, my father's glazed face in my own, waning and craning. Again the growl of shutting doors, the jolt and one-off treble of iron on iron, then a long centrifugal haulage of speed through every dragging socket. And so, by night and day, to be transported 
through gallerie earth with them, the only relict of all that I belong to, hurtled forward, reflecting in a window, mirror-backed by blasted, weeping rock walls, flicker-lit. This is a strange little thing. As in, from a, a, three poems in memory of the great Lithuanian-born Polish-language poet Czeslaw Miłosz. Miłosz uh, uh, was, as they say, a practicing Catholic. Practicing for belief to the very end. <laughs> you know, utterly faithless and helping, wanting faith and so on. So it allowed me to put in some of my own experience. But again, this is an in inverted commas. It's a voice speaking. It just says, like everybody else, from a sequence called Out of This World. Like everybody else, I bowed my head during the consecration of the bread and wine, lifted my eyes to the raised host and raised chalice, believed whatever it means that a change occurred. I went to the altar rails and received the mystery on my tongue, returned to my place, shut my eyes fast, made an act of thanksgiving, opened my eyes and felt time starting up again. There was never a scene when I had it out with myself or with another. The loss occurred off stage. And yet I cannot disavow words like thanksgiving or host or communion bread. They have an undying tremor and draw like well water far down. Miwash once said a mysterious and beautiful thing about some moment in his life. He, it was at, the mystery and beauty was added to by his Slavic accent. He said, I felt gratitude, therefore I believed. <laughs> this is called quitting time, or it could be quitting time. Farmer at the end of the day. The hose-down, chamfered concrete pleases him. He'll wait a while before he kills the light on the cleaned-up yard, its pails and farrowing crate, and the cast-iron pump, immobile as a herm, upstanding elsewhere in another time. More and more, this last look at the wet shine of the place is what means most to him. And to repeat the phrase, my head is light, because it often is as he reaches back and switches off, a home-based man at home in the end with little. Except this same night after nightness, reading up the work, the song of a tubular steel gate in the dark as he pulls it to and starts his uphill trek. Let's read two more. <clears throat> this is called the lift. It has the word braird in the first line. And... Uh, it records a funeral, funeral of uh, a sister who died uh, three years ago. Something unexpected happened at the end. It was a very traditional funeral. She lived near the church. They people walked behind the hearse, and uh, people took lifts of the coffin at the beginning, at the end of the of the event uh, of the procession. So, 
And as ever, we had a, an army helicopter circling. Not, for, not, not, not because of the funeral, just... <clears throat> the lift, it's called. A first green braird, the hawthorn half in leaf. Her funeral filled the road and could have stepped from some old photograph of a Breton pardon. Remote familiar women, remote familiar women and men in caps, walking four abreast soon falling quiet. Then came the throttle and articulated whops of a helicopter crossing, and afterwards <clears throat> awareness of the sound of our own footsteps, of open air, and the life behind those words, open and air. I remembered her aghast, fetal, shaking, sweating, shrunk, wet-haired, a beaten breath, a misting mask, the flash of one wild glance, like ghost surveillance from behind a gleam of helicopter glass. A lifetime, then the death time, reticence keeping us together when together, all declaration deemed outspokenness. Favorite aunt, good sister, faithful daughter, delicate since childhood, tough alloy of disapproval kindness and hauteur, she took the risk at last of certain joys, her bird table and jubilating birds, the fashion in her wardrobe and her tall boy. Whether in the end would say or say, reprise of griefs in summer's clearest mornings, children's deaths in snowdrops and the May, whole requiems at the sight of plants and gardens. They bore her lightly on the bier. Four women, four friends, she would have called them girls, stepped in and claimed the final lift beneath the hawthorn. And this is called Midnight Anvil. It celebrates, to begin with, a, a ceremony devised by Barney Devlin, who was still alive, the man who was beating that anvil, in the 1940s. He's in his 80s, maybe even early 90s now. But on the night of the 31st of December, 1999, as the great millennium turned, he fought at midnight and struck the anvil 12 times. So this is Midnight Anvil. There are five tankas, little short Japanese shapes, uh, uh, 31 syllables per stanza. So that's five 31s or... 155 syllables and it's over. Yeah. <laughs> Midnight Anvil. If I wasn't there when Barney Devlin hammered the Midnight Anvil, I can still hear it. Twelve blows struck for the millennium. His nephew heard it in Edmonton, Alberta. The cellular phone held high as a horse's ear. <laughs> Barney smiling to himself. Afterwards I thought, church bells beyond the stars heard. And then imagined Barney putting it to me. You'll maybe write a poem. <laughs> what I'll do instead is quote those water-burning medieval smiths. Huff, puff, lust, bus, call. Such noise on nights heard no one never. 
and Owen Rua asking Seamus McGarrelt to forge him a spade, sharp, well-shaped from the anvil, and ringing sweet as a bell. Thanks a lot. sounds quite the same when you're reading them yourself, Seamus. You've mentioned a lot of very momentous events in our recent lives, 7-7-9-11 and so forth. I wonder what you think is the responsibility of poetry to respond to events like that and, and if there is such a responsibility whether it's in a sort of tension with your creative freedom. Well, there's uh, a friend of mine, poet in uh, America, Robert Pinsky, and he wrote a, a very good essay called Responsibility of the Poet and reminded the reader, poets, of one simple thing. Responsibility is the same as answering, you know. The, uh, if there is a responsibility, it is to answer in some way what is occurring. And there are many ways of answering. You can, as we do, as we enter the tube station, nod and move on. Uh, I think it's a matter of temperament, a matter of awareness, and a matter of what the times are, obviously. And uh, uh, there's no... I think awareness is what's called for. I mean, I've, I've put in here about using a sledgehammer to hammer down a fence post. It occurred in... I mean, I remember that when I was young and easy under the apple boughs. <laughs> Hitting uh, that, unleashing everything, every strength you had, unmercifully on the top of the post, and really having a you know some feeling that this was too much. Uh, that really the, un the the total exercise of total strength and power was something again some law in it. So, so that, that that's one thing you re you remember that in your body. Say, how do you respond? Shock and awe, the hammering of uh, Iraq, <coughs> the bombings watched on TV, you know. Uh, <coughs> I, so I thought, I, I wrote a sonnet called A Shiver. It was a, because the, 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 the fence post shivers and the earth shivers, and you shiver a bit. And the, but the shiver was, the, it ends up with a, a line the staked earth quailed and shivered in the handle. Now, I'm sure many, very, very few poets or readers will think, ah, a poem about the bombing, you know. But it says, it's in the, <coughs> says in it, um, uh, does it do you good to have known it in your bones? Withholdable, directable, withholdable at will. <coughs> I suppose what I'm saying is, the, if, 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 you, if you're living in the times and you have a, an iconography or painter or, or, a, or a set of images or a, a landscape or whatever, <coughs> The, the difficulty is to know how to relate your givens to, to, to the circumstances. Uh, it, it, it was there in the beginning in Northern Ireland. I'm sorry answering a long question here, a long answer. Good. But uh, in, I mean, when the trouble started in 1969, 70, 71, there was a lot of violence, a lot of killing and explosions those first years. <coughs> but the Michael Longley, myself, Derek Mahon, James Simmons, various people, 
<coughs> who were in the middle of it, we didn't actually start writing about it. First of all, it was stowed in us as a, as a secret. It was latent knowledge. And it was coded. And everything was nod, you know. And uh, it took us a while. I mean, Michael <coughs> wrote in one way, I wrote in another way, I had County Dairy and frogs, you know, spades. And, uh, and, but but oh, it, it took us into the mid-70s to get a handle on how to do it. Uh, so I think instant response is okay if you're that kind of writer, you know. Bertolt, Bertolt Brecht, a political intelligence, helplessly reading the world in terms of political understanding. In a different way, uh, Pablo Neruda, like a terrific old Stalinist as he was, you know, m m unmerciful in one way in his holding to the party line, doing the star turn for the, for the machine. At the same time, with a terrific sense of the wretched of the earth, he writes a poem about a pair of socks, which is really a poem about grief and the, and the deprived and the joy of a pair of socks. So I think there's no one way of doing it. There's Wilfred Owen, warning. There's, there's, there's uh, Rosenberg coming back with a poppy in his ear, writing a poem about a little frail poppy in the trenches. <clears throat> and as if the whole weight of the experience is there in the dusty poppy in his ear. And there's no, there's no shouting. But the, the little poppy, you know, in this century on nearly, bears the weight of grief. You know, so do it as right as you can, I guess. You're a man who cherishes and is nourished by his roots. And I wonder how you think that kind of celebration of ethnicity can be stopped um, metamorphosing into the kind of chauvinism, the kind of dangerous chauvinism we see in the world just now? Yeah, that's a difficult question, I think. Uh, I mean, I, I raised the question myself in a lecture years ago in Stockholm about the question of how that... I just, just, just glanced over it. You're proud of the duchess, as they say in, in Irish, the, the belonging, the... Then uh, there's a sense of loyalty and fidelity to your first place and your first nature, if you, if you come from a certain kind of culture. I mean, a, a, a rural culture or a, a, sm a smaller place. I don't think it applies in the same way if you're born in New York. On the other hand, if you're born, if you're born in, in Harlem and you're in, in the black culture, you have a black speech that being have become a, and a kind of a, a bonded political energy rather than just a, an individual uh, you know, speech. So I think there, in T.S. Eliot once said, the only solution is to be very intelligent. <laughs> That's one solution. <coughs> the, the next one is kind of a, 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 a culture that's alive to itself and uh, with plenty of, uh, plenty of debate and plenty of poetry. Good educational system, you know, Irony, <clears throat> but if you, I mean, Scotland and Ireland and uh, Poland and Russia, they have all this possibility of uh, having a, a fidelity to the actual beauty, the, the patria, or the matria, the the heather, or the bog, or whatever, the round, the round tower, the cross, the broch, the vodka, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I think that's all perfectly in order. Uh, resistance to the global idiom is also perfectly in order and called for. But as you say, you don't want to, you don't want to turn it into ethnic swank, you know, or ethnic cleansing. Next step. Yeah. I don't know the answer. I know it's a danger. And I wasn't going to tell anybody that you were cherishing these roots, our roots, in the Oxford bar last night, so I won't. Um, <laughs> could we have the lights up, please, and get some questions from the audience? And would you be kind enough to wait for the mic to come when you, when you put your hand up? My goodness. If there's no hands up, I'm happy to read on. <laughs> Thank you. I'll start off with a silly one so everyone else wouldn't be intimidated. I wondered, you, you seem to have left school with a command of, of several languages. Um, have you ever learned languages as an adult? And if so, how has that been for you? Well, I'm a bit of a disgrace in that way. The answer is no, I've not learned poems as an adult. And I didn't, I don't, command is a strong word for, for my relationship to schoolboy French and school Irish and uh, school Latin. I, I have to boast a bit, I got the highest mark in Northern Ireland in Latin. <laughs> uh, it kind of works, you know, it's very, it's very logical. And, uh, just fill, uh, so, uh, so I had Latin, I did Latin at university, I did French for a while. Uh, I regret uh, not having German, you know. Uh, but then I did a bit of Anglo-Saxon, which carried me in, in that direction. Uh, but... Uh, no, I do, I do regret, we have, we have in-laws, my wife has, has a sister married to a Spaniard who have been going there for 40 years and I can imitate uh, speaking Spanish <laughs> <laughs> and can imitate Italian but not really any command, no, 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 thank you. Yeah. More questions? Thank you. You've um, travelled to and worked in the US for some time, and I just wondered what your favourite and least favourite things about the US were. Well, I went to the US a, to, for the first time with my wife and two little ones in 1970 to the University of California at Berkeley, just at the end of the 60s. Chronologically the 70s, culturally still the 60s. I love the freedom I love the sense of uh, people trusting in the present and uh, speaking speaking freely. There was going to be eroticism in the in the air actually also at that time with the uh, smoke of marijuana and uh, long loose garments and uh, Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger. Uh, we had a wonderful year coming from the rancid violent killing field or killing streets of Belfast. I don't want to exaggerate but there, there was killing in earnest to the glamorous uh, rhetorical uh, land of California where at Sather Gate at the University of California it was like uh, some medieval pageant where there were, there were the, uh, the, the Black Panthers full of mighty, mighty theatre, all part of the people and danger too but no killing there were the uh, Hare Krishna jingling and dressed in their curtains. And, uh, <laughs> and there, were, there was, a, uh, there was a, an evangelist called Hubert pre calling down doom on the whole scene. And uh, there was that sense then of the huge, that the whole place was 
was the, the whole culture of the Bay Area was a protest against the Vietnam War, which was going on everywhere else. Uh, I, but and in the middle of in the middle of San Francisco Bay, uh, there was a place called Treasure Island, military base, a little island in the middle. And when you were coming over on the bus from the airport, you stopped at Treasure Island military base. And quite often there were young fellows who were coming in from Arkansas or wherever who had hung over and were at a party the night before. And there they were a tremble, both drink and terror, going in, going in to go off to, from, from there, from the shore of California, off to Vietnam. So there's that. There was one life there. The next time I went for any length of time was to, to Harvard. And I had to beware as a teacher at Harvard for blaming the gilded and gifted young people there, intellectually gifted, economically gifted, gifted uh, with a trust in their future, no sense of danger at that time in their world. And you have to say, come on, Haney, just don't penalize them just because they're extremely lucky. You know, there's, that, there's that European swank which says, well, they don't really know, you know, never been invaded, never been this, that, and the other. But the, the gift in that, in that American culture is that things can be changed and that they believe in change. Uh, I think that, of course, there are many other things to say. All I was saying is it taught me to beware of automatic anti-Americanism. And uh, there's a good bit of that around, you know. But there's a good bit of reason for debate on the subject at this <laughs> particular point. The regime is not the, the whole culture. Somebody just at the back there. Thank you. I should say American poetry has meant a hell of a lot to me in meeting American poets and so on. Can you pass it along? Thank you. Thanks for your patience. Thank you. Um, Mr. Heaney, you're a Nobel laureate. Uh, what influence, if any, has this had on your artistic life and output? Well, I don't think any, to tell you the truth. I don't think so. But how, who am I to know? See, <laughs> um, the, the question is framed in a different way often at home or, or in other places, you know. What's it like to be so famous, they say? <laughs> Well, I answer honestly that in Ireland, and probably in Scotland to some extent, everybody is more or less famous at a certain stage. You have to begin life conducting yourself in public, knowing how to deflect banter and mockery. And, uh, and, and in fact, in, in my generation, the older, the elders, saw it as part of their function in the culture to torment youngsters. You know. <laughs> in order to train them in the art of, you know, self-preservation and uh, irony. And uh, I'm, I'm not serious about it. I, I, I also, I was lucky in that my first book, 1966, was very well received. So that caused bother in different ways. Envy, resentment, murmurings. Um, then, to tell you the truth, the books continued to be fairly well received. And I ended up doing things, like giving public lectures and taking on things like Oxford Professor of Poetry and so on and so forth. So I was 
busy and visible and overworked. <laughs> I overwork myself. I'm answering this question far too honestly for you. <laughs> but what I mean is, when, when all that happened, of course it was like being covered in an avalanche for a while of mail and so on. But in, as to the writing, I mean, I think this stuff's much the same as what was going on. I was extremely lucky in this way. The announcement was made in uh, October 1995. I was in Greece with my wife and a couple of friends. They couldn't find us for a day and a half. <laughs> the announcement was made on a Thursday at lunchtime in Sweden. I rang home to our own house at 4 o'clock on Friday afternoon. That was a, a day and a bit afterwards. And my son Christopher answered and told me. And, uh, and I said, you better tell your mother. And she said, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong? <laughs> it is true. <laughs> because even grammar, grammar dictated that no sentence beginning, I have one, <laughs> should be allowed, you know. He has, she has, you have, but or we have. <laughs> but, uh, so, so, so after that, I had Beowulf was, was it came up, I, I was working at Beowulf. I had taken on that job. Or the Address of Poetry, a book of Essie's lectures that had been done for the Oxford thing. They, were, they came out in about November, or maybe earlier, 95. In 96, I had a book already in called The Spirit Level, which came out in 96. So I had a kind of a, an air raid shelter over me, two books, and then Beowulf was ready, then Beowulf came out. So I was well, well, well roofed over, you know, and I had time just to proceed as, f as normally as possible. Seamus was saying last night how bemused he was to have been described in the press as having been on a walking holiday in Greece. Oh, yeah. Unless they call strolling to the taverna walking, of course. <laughs> yeah, my friends, when they read that, they said, no, no, this is a hoax. <laughs> 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 so. Thank you. Uh, following the romantic tradition of the poet-prophet, uh, do you think that you are more or less consciously prophesizing anything for us? No, not consciously prophesizing anything. Uh, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all have a, a capacity for dreadful intuition, you know. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, you pick up, you pick up, you try to pick up what's in the air and transmit it. But you don't sit down at your desk and say, now I'm going to transmit what's in the air, you know. <laughs> Uh, if you're lucky, some of the poems catch something, or a line or two. But I don't mean in predictive terms, you know. I mean, Yeats says this terrific poem was always quoted, the, the second coming, turning and turning in a widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer, things fall apart, the centre cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. It's around 1919. The, the, uh, Yeats wasn't no welcomer of the Russian Revolution. so. So, so that was a current events poem with, a, with a, an ominous ring to it. And uh, so I, when I did that uh, Taurus version, I thought there was a kind of ominous quality in the material itself. So I was glad to do that. And I certainly feel that we are in, 
a shadowed age, you know. Uh, but there is, uh, it's an age of anxiety, to quote again. And um, that, that is registered in different ways. It can be registered in a haiku as much as in an epic. You said when you were in Belfast that you know it took you a long time to raise your, your head from the murderous and celebrate the marvellous. Is, are you at a stage now because of where we are in the world where you have difficulty again celebrating the marvellous? No, I, I, I use this phrase indeed and, and it, that it was in the Nobel lecture about I think lifting, lifting my eyes and going from the murderous to the marvellous. But I, I truly, perhaps for, for, too caught, for too long, Made, it made it a matter of these lectures and discourses. What is, as we talked about, the responsibility? And I, actually, the responsibility is to answer and to follow your temperament. I think, but uh, it's it's not as simple as you know. What I mean, it's easy to give it's easy to give the catechism answer, but to live the catechism in your life is a different, more difficult thing. So uh, I. The poems I liked best in, my se in the 70s and 80s were ones where I was uh, getting through past a feeling of being weighed upon to a feeling of kicking the heels or taking pleasure. There's a poem called Oysters, which is the beginning of uh, a book called Fieldwork. It's about eating oysters. Forbidden pleasure at the best of times. <laughs> but uh, we were... We were uh, we were in County Galway in this oyster cottage, as they say, a haven. And of course, up there in Belfast was something else. But you felt you were doing wrong. At the same time, you said, to hell with it. We're going to go for it. <laughs> and it was an, Im an image of freedom, poetry, the, the other element, you know, the extra element that you hope art will take you to without, or, or raise you to, without, without deserting the gravitational pull of the actual endured life, you know. Yes. In the middle there. You mentioned American colleagues, poets, yes. whom you admire. Can you name some and say why, briefly? Well, when I went to Harvard that time, I, I met Elizabeth Bishop, and I had known her work, of course, for a long, long time. I admired her because of, among other things, her style as a person as well. It's kind of demure and strong as a horse, so to speak, <laughs> and uh, ironical. And But I, I was lucky to also, I mean, part of a good fortune was to know people. I met Robert Lowell also, and uh, he was less demure. <laughs> Uh, there was an age of danger in Lowell's company, which was good. Uh, and uh, but American poetry did, of course, mean a lot to me. I was mentioning when I was undergraduate, I loved uh, and knew by heart, and still know by heart, poems by John Crow Ransom and uh, Robert Frost and so on. Uh, then, um, you know, when I was in California, actually, it was important to to feed to see poetry again as part of the glamorous uh, protest life. Uh, Robert Bly was living in the Bay Area at that time. Gary Snyder, Robert Duncan. Uh, uh, Ginsberg was adjacent, but I never actually saw him. But I, I attended readings uh, where, where 
and readings by uh, black poets, also the, the Black Panther movement and the Black Liberation thing was going on. And the black poets in particular were interesting to me. Their crisis was one of first person singular, you know, versus first person plural. And you know, uh, am I am I a singular voice, uh, or am I the voice of the collective? We, the, un, Ill, the ill done by, the unjustly treated, we uh, who have had a dream, we who are bonded for action. And if you want political success, you have to bond. I mean, that's what makes strength, I think. Everybody together, uh, linked arms. It's not a great place for the poet to be. And any poet you see, Lowell went on a, a march in the, in the, what do you call it, the, on the Pentagon once. I, he, he broke his glasses and uh, everything. He was a bit uneasy in this collective thing. But, but at that stage, the black poets were being called upon by a force almost stronger than their aesthetic, uh, their aesthetic law, you know, to jump in and be poets of the negritude of the black experience. So coming from Northern Ireland, knowing the pressures on both sides to, for, for solidarity and so on, that was interesting to watch their dilemmas. So American poetry, I could go on in different ways about it, but it meant meant a lot, yeah. Somebody at the back there, in fact there's two, we could probably take both of them if we could just pass them along one to the other, thank you. Seamus, you used the word duochus earlier to talk about your sense of place, your sense of rootedness, the land and so on. Do you think English is adequate to describe it? God forgive me, I do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, um, I think if James Joyce manages, you know, uh, I, I, I'm reassured to say it's because there's a, a, a great scholar of Irish, Irish speaker, the Dúchas Galiorga, Sean O'Morga, August Dúrchilomsa Urawain, Gorhilshi, Gorushisasta. Uh, is Fajr uh, the experience of the Irish a chur emerla? He said he would have said usually. I mean, if he hadn't said it to me, I'd have been less shy, or been more shy of saying it. He said after Joyce, this is an Irish language speaker. After Joyce, he said all oh, this stuff about being put out of step with your own experience because of being put out of put, having lost the Irish language. He said, I don't believe it. You know. On the other hand, I mean, obviously, each language has its genius, its intimacy, and uh, if you say Fariga uh, instead of the sea, if you say Muir instead of the sea or or the ocean, I mean, ocean, you're straight back into Mediterranean uh, mythology. If you say the Atlantic, you're back to Atlas who, at the edge of Africa, and in that in that Horace poem. Is Atlantis Fines, the the boundary where Atlas stands. Uh, so, so they're just they're completely different uh, world inhalations and exhalations in the languages. But uh, it is true that if you know the Irish language a bit, even uh, it it carries with it the weather and the you know the. Uh, almost the fragrance of different experiences. Uh, if you say uh, Igbunch Namona, 
cutting turf. You, you can actually smell the turf smoke a wee bit. But that's all association with us, you know. Uh, if, if somebody from Connemara or Donegal who doesn't know Irish say, we're cutting turf, the 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 duchess is in the accent quite often, you know. I, would, I always love to quote an old uh, man from Donegal, Jean Fat Melly, and he, he he talked about people going up to Dublin and getting job in improving themselves from the local district, getting jobs with Irish Television or RTE as called. He said, John Fat would utter the wonder of the first world in a phrase like, "He has a big high job up in Dublin." <laughs> <laughs> Now that's English in a way, isn't it? <laughs> but it has a dochus in it, you know. The Scots for that is high hygiene, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I did say that somebody just along that rope, it could, it could be a very quick question because we're almost out of time. Yeah, I, just, I just wanted to ask about your critical work. And um, you've got a quite a poetic prose style. I wondered how your writing of poetry has informed your criticism. I think a good bit. I, I know I, I go over the top sometimes and get gets... But I, I grew up with T.S. Eliot, as everybody in my generation did, and his wonderful essay, Tradition and the Individual Talent, and then his essays on critics in the book The Sacred Wood, where he lambasts hell out of something which he calls impressionistic criticism. That is criticism that tries to give a flavor of the work and in, you know, enjoys itself writing about the writing. And uh, in my puritanical way, and uh, there's an element of that, embedded too, uh, I thought quite right. So, so uh, this kind of strict Eliotic classical standoff with the work was called for. But it wasn't the way I naturally did things. The first public lectures I gave, anything I've written has been mostly written down to be spoken out and then written down again and rewritten. The first one I gave ever was on Ted Hughes and there was one on Robert Frost and it was about in really enjoyment. They were old style appreciations, not theoretical deconstructions. And then in the 70s I came across an essay which, which gave me, as they say, permission to let fly and to be a bit richer and more poetical. It's by another great genius, uh, Ojip Mandelstam, Russian poet, and he has an essay called a conversation about Dante. Essay isn't, it's a critical fantasia. Uh, it's a kind of carnival of, of utterance uh, about Dante. And uh, many other essays in his prose works. And, and they, I know from that moment on, I felt I could uh, enjoy myself and I'll let it be seen that I enjoyed it. So that is how it happened, I suppose. Ladies and gentlemen, you'll not be a, even a, the smallest bit surprised to learn that this is a man who's got to leave a festival in this city to go to a party in another one. Um, <laughs> the corollary of that is that he's got to get to the airport. He is going to be signing books, but there will only be just one book per person and just the signature, please. No great Aunt Rosemary's 70th birthday because it's a very tight, <laughs> very tight uh, schedule. Um, we also have to say thanks to Sue who's signing and to the Hawthorne Literary Retreat for today's event. And um, Seamus... Uh, Seamus once advised an audience he was with to walk on air against their better judgment. So for a wonderful hour of air time, could you thank Seamus Heaney? Thank you.